Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time together. We pray that as we study this next um, chapter of Leviticus, that you would be powerful among us, that you would do only uh, what, what only you can do, which is to transform the heart. It's easy to talk a good game. We pray that you would, would make us willing to serve you from the heart. We pray that we're challenged this morning to do so by what we read about the Old Covenant, about the Old Law, and how it points forward to Christ and His people. We pray that we're encouraged this morning and that we are, um, little by little, once again, shaped into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, we are in Leviticus. Chapter 21, and it starts kind of a new section here. We, we took a, while, a, a little break. Um, we uh, finished chapter 20, then uh, Rodney taught for a little while while we went on the retreat. Appreciate him doing that. Um, but we're returning here to chapter 21. It starts a new section. The previous chapters that we saw, uh, 18 through 20 turned from matters relating directly to the tabernacle. I mean, we've already gone through all the sacrifices, we've gone through the various uh, installation of the priests and, and, um, and all of that. It turned from matters relating directly to the tabernacle to matters related more broadly to living as holy people of Yahweh in the Promised Land. But with chapters 20 and 21, it returns to matters of the tabernacle, and specifically the holiness of the priesthood. Before we begin it, these chapters uh, teach that, that the priests are held to a higher standard than the other Israelites. Is that fair? Why would they be held to a higher standard? What do you think? They guide the people. They guide the people. Okay, and, and, and what is that? Why would that be important? Well, if they're, if they're wrong, then it's going to affect a much greater population. Uh, they yourself Okay, so if you're, gonna, if you're going to teach, if you're going to instruct the people, you need to model it for them. And they're held to a higher standard for that. What, what else? What are, what's an, possibly another reason? They represent God to the people. Ah, they represent God to the people. So uh, why would they need to be held to a higher standard? Because they have to transmit what God gives to them. If they don't do that right there breaking God's communication to his people. They represent the highest standard. They represent the highest standard. If they're not representing it rightly, the transmission breaks down. If, if, um, if Yahweh has called them as priests, they're constantly in the courts of the tabernacle, right? And to be before a holy God, constantly before the courts, that's not something to be taken lightly. Since Yahweh is holy, his servants must maintain their holy status. Um, and in doing so, they're communicating the holiness of God to the people. If they don't care about holiness, what does that convey? If they don't care about their own holiness, what does that convey? That they don't care about God, because God is holy. That they don't care about God, and, and what else? That... that he doesn't care about holiness. Yeah. So you have 
two-tiered deal. If they are nonchalant about living rightly before God, then they convey that God really, it really doesn't matter. Um, do we see that today? Yeah? That principle remains. It's not new. The principle remains. It didn't stop with the cross. Morning. Um, let's say you have an, a, a surgeon's assistant, right? That would, would, we, would we all agree that an operating room is a sterile environment? If you know differently, don't rat out your hospital. <laughs> Generally speaking, an operating room is going to be a sterile environment. They, they, you know, why? Because all your defenses are open on the table and they need a sterile environment to do what they need to do. If they don't, what happens? They're unclean, unclean. There are germs everywhere. So if you have a surgeon's assistant that's known to leave the operating room, go out and get exposed to all kinds of who knows what, because hospitals are incubators of disease. I mean, they really are. So they go out, and then they, and then they come back in, and nope, oh. <laughs> and they come back in without cleaning, without doing anything. What does that convey about the assistant? And what does it convey about the surgeon that uses this person again the next time around? They don't care about cleanliness. They don't care if you have secondary infection from surgery. <laughs> Neither does the, and then the surgeon does it, right? I mean, by imputation, the surgeon is marked by that. And it's the same kind of idea here. The priests maintain their holiness because they're representing God to the people. They wanna, they, their job is to convey His concern for the holiness of His people. We're talking about ritual purity here, but it's, there's also a related idea, a second related idea, that it's not only ritual purity, but also moral purity. So we look at several things here. Let's start in verse 1. <coughs> and the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister who is near to him, because she has had no husband, for her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make bald patches, patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, for they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God, therefore they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled, neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God." He shall be holy to you, for I, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. Let's stop there for a minute. Why would Yahweh start here in addressing priestly holiness? What's the issue here? 
Why is this a big deal? Don't touch dead bodies unless it's immediate family. Why go here? Okay. So, so there's a there's a very uh, personal connection with family. Um, there's there's maybe some uh, issue related to honor your father and mother there, and and you have let's say you have a priest whose mother dies. What's to happen there? Well, they they grieve. And there are some rituals that they go through about attending to the body. Okay? But if it's the mother-in-law, <laughs> what is the priest to do? And don't read anything into that example. What is the priest to do if it's the mother-in-law that dies? Can he attend to the body? Can he do what a family normally does in, in putting a loved one to rest? The answer is, no, he can't. He can't touch the body. He can't go around. There's no, there's no visitation with the priest for the mother-in-law. Does that mean he can't be sad? Of course not. He's still human. He can mourn, but he can't engage in any of the rituals that would put him in... Con- <laughs> Clint's laughing. There's still mourning involved, even though it's... Um, there, he, can, he can mourn, but he can't necessarily leave the tabernacle and do the things that would defile him and take him out of service. That's not a permissible reason. Um, all right. Contrast to general population. They have a duty of caring for the dead and participating in funeral procedures. The, close, the, the exception is the closest relatives... Of the closest relatives mentioned in this passage, who is not mentioned? Brothers? Who's not mentioned? His wife. His wife is not mentioned. Do you find that odd? In fact, look at verse 4. What is that... What does that convey to you, verse 4? Okay, the priest needs to be set apart from the people he's serving. But does that say what it says? (laughs) Does that say what the first impression is? I'll read it to you out loud. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself. What? Does that mean? He's not what? He's not married. He's not married. No, they they are married. They they're because it says you know if he marries he's not to marry a certain type of women it doesn't knock out all women so they anticipate the priest are going to be married. But he's not supposed to bury his wife. Now that's one option. There actually been. A lot of wrestling over this, so I bring it up. There's one, that's one option. There are four that I, that I found. Uh, one is he's not supposed to bury his wife. Think about that in Jewish culture. All of the patriarchs, well, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, big deal. 
how to bury the wife, right? I mean, when, when Abraham buried Sarah, it was a big deal. When uh, Isaac uh, buried Rebekah, big deal. I mean, they were haggling over places to get an, a place of honor for their wives to be buried. I mean, it's a big deal. Um, Jacob, <clears throat> oddly enough, did not, uh, was not buried with Rachel, but was buried with Leah. Leah, dead gum, I did it again. <laughs> Leah, Star Wars, it's infected everything. Um, big deal. With that kind of history, with that kind of cultural, uh, I don't know, sacrosanct kind of thing, bearing the wife, which tells you something about our culture. I mean, the guy usually goes first, so it's really never... Um, eh. uh, it, it tells you that it's a huge thing in Old Testament culture to, to, to go through that process of grieving and, and burying the wife. Why? It just doesn't seem to make sense that that would be the reason for them. That doesn't seem to be the, 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 the most logical interpretation for this. But some have held that. Uh, another is, um, one commentator suggests that the text is actually forbidding a priest to marry a woman of dubious character. He's looking at verse 7, but that seems to really rip the verse out of context here. So... Another option that some have thrown out there is that the text is corrupt and that it actually prohibits a man from burying his married sister. I, I think claiming corruption in the text probably are the last option here. There's another possibility here, and I think it makes more sense. Um, it may be signifying that the priest is not to bury any in-laws those who are related to him because of his role as husband. Because think about it. Who's his closest of closest relatives? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that's assumed. It, the, the idea is it doesn't mention a wife specifically because that's just an assumption. Of course you're going to bury your wife. She's the closest thing, mother and father. You left them to cleave to her, Right? So that, that is another option here, and I think it's probably the right one, but I just wanted to, because it just, when you read verse 4, it kind of throws you off. But I think that's what's going on. The role of the husband would be normally in the general population to take care of in-laws when they die. Um, and, and so that's, that's kind of, I bring this out too, because when we interpret text, when we read the Bible, and it becomes kind of, some things just kind of hit us weird. I, I think the, the, the proper her, hermeneutic, how we interpret Scripture, is one of, um, I don't know, assuming that it's not out to conflict. Assuming that, you know, the best of the author, not looking for every nitpicky thing. We, we search for ways to harmonize it. If we don't understand it, because if there's something wrong, it's wrong with us, not with the text. That's the assumption we make when we deal with Scripture. And so I bring this out as kind of a way to show that uh, when we're... Can I when we're something else? Yeah, sure, go ahead. It's interesting to think he should not make himself a husband among the people and so profane himself. He's a servant of God. He's, he's more a servant of the Lord and a representative of the Lord than he is for the people. Interesting. Um, <laughs> 
You mean as far as taking there's on those? A there's a separation there. of the duties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. All right. But even with all of that, it doesn't give the priest free reign to mourn over uh, these exceptions to the rule just any way he wants. Look at, um, look at verses 5 and 6. Have we seen these prohibitions before? I point out that it says bald patches, not bald head. Some things you just can't help unless you're Trump. Um, He's profane for other reasons. Um, what, uh, what, uh, what have we seen these before? Have we seen these prohibitions before? Yes. Yes, Joshua says. <laughs> Memory like a still trap. Chapter 19, right? We saw this. Where uh, all of these kinds of symbols, all these representations of what not to do whenever you're mourning a, lo- a loved one points to pagan rituals of dealing with worshiping the dead. And so all of these were symbols of pagan uh, ways of dealing with ancestor worship and all this kind of stuff. And he brings it out here again to hammer that the priests are to especially be different. Um, There's a real tendency in this culture to to go toward ancestor worship. It's all around them. And so he's, again, hammering home. The priesthood is not to be involved in that. Um, all right. Even in burial customs, the priests are to act in a holy manner. He's, um, and even in whom he chooses for a wife, he has to remain holy. Look at 7 through 8. If we have uh, a text saying that these certain types of women are not to be married by priests, what's the assumption for the general population? Well, uh, to having to having to accept the priest from it means that they're maybe maybe the, that they are being married in in the general population, and then that's okay. Um, the women described here did remarry in ancient Israel; they were not castoffs, but the priests were holy. Why is it an issue for a priest to marry a certain type of woman? Why would that be an issue? That's right. They become bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And if that's the case, her character becomes an issue, right? She reflects on the husband. And these are more character issues here. Incidentally, of, of these uh, the descriptions here, notice that what's not addressed is widow. So it's not just that there was some kind of sexual relationship in the past, it's the character of how, how that happened. And so widow is, um, is not mentioned here as, as off-limits for the priests. Um, all right, the issue, yeah. Uh, look at verse 9. As with the wife, the children's behavior also reflected on the priest. Why? She's a grown woman. She can do what she wants to do. Why does that? Why does? Why are we done with this? What's the, what's at issue here? She profanes her father. She profanes her father. Why? How would it reflect on him? 
of an adult woman, obviously shaming herself, why would it reflect on him? Well, what's in view here is cult prostitution, temple prostitution. And if you have a child of the priest who is engaging in idolatry that way, that is a direct rebellion to his office as a priest. And so as you see in other places when you have this kind of of, um, extreme um, sexual infidelity or sexual uh, activity, um, you have a great penalty. Not only does she get stoned, but they burn the body, showing the, the, um, the disregard that she had for the tabernacle. All right, look at uh, verse 10. Start verse 10 here. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been con- consecrated to wear garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled or a prostitute, these he shall not marry." But he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people, for I am the Lord who sanctifies him. All right, who are we talking about in this situation? Just a regular priest? The high priest. If the priests are held to a higher standard, the high priest is held to an even higher standard. Right? Uh, He does not touch anybody, any dead body. He's not to even go out of the sanctuary. Um, if you thought the grieving restrictions on the priests were tough, the high priest is even, is even tougher. In periods of mourning, he cannot even leave the tabernacle. It gives no provision for impurity to taint the high priest and then be brought back into the sanctuary. Why? He's going into, Day of Atonement, he's going into the, you know, the Holy of Holies, and he's always in there. And if he brings back in impurity, that just kind of sullies the whole thing. Likewise, the, the requirements for his wife are more stringent. First, he has to marry a virgin. Why is that an issue? Why is that an issue? How do we go from generation to generation appointing high priest? Is it done by popular vote? Do we have a priestly electoral college? It's hereditary. From father to son, it's the the sons of Aaron, and they follow the line. How do you ensure that the kids are going to be the high priests? Right? Give no provision. It's got to be maintained. And so by taking on the office of high priest, he limits his options on who he can marry. Um. The goal here is that his offspring will truly be his, and no doubt as to the eligibility for the pri- as to their eligibility for the priesthood. 
Further, it says, the virgin must be from among his own people, which probably means the kin of the priestly clan. And we talked about the rules and sticky situations. You can get in on that uh, many, many moons ago. All right. Look at uh, verse 16. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face, or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest, who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings, since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the, the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar, because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them." So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. So God is not PC. <laughs> is that the takeaway here? Why have this prohibition? I mean, didn't God create the deaf? Didn't God create the blind? Why this prohibition? God's holiness is paramount. God's holiness is paramount to that. Any any other thoughts? It's kind of like the sacrifices he has to be without blemish and pure. Ah. Those sacrifices have to be without blemish, right? Um, and it's a similar thing here. Why is that? Why do the sacrifices have to be without blemish? I think the the ultimate answer is Christ, because through this line. All the way Always a good answer in Sunday school. Yes, go ahead. It goes all the way down to Christ. And so you have to keep the line pure. Okay. For a perfect sacrifice. Uh, keep the line pure, for, and it's a picture of Christ. Um, all right. If, if verses 1 through 15 focus on priests maintaining their holy status so they can serve at the altar, this naturally leads to the question of, who can't serve at the altar, right? Uh, that, and, and we see 12 conditions here, and, and these are not exhaustive. There's all kinds of things that could go on here that would keep them out of service because of the text here calls it blemishes, some defect, some issue. Um, why would a blemish profane the Lord's sanctuaries. Well, the tabernacle, and I think you've already hinted at it, the tabernacle, remember, was a picture of Eden. I mean, everything in there had this ornate, uh, artistic view of, of a garden. It's a, it's, a, it's a garden in pictorial form. And part of the Eden narrative says that mankind was created perfect. Good. Very good. Maybe not perfect. Very good. Without blemish. And so, again, if God is in the tabernacle, present with His people, 
And the tabernacle is where he walks with man, so to speak. That picture is marred if we have somebody hobbling along or whatever. You've got some kind of issue there. Um, it was to be a place of perfection. And those working in it were not to have any physical blemishes as a way to symbolize the perfection that used to belong to all of humanity and the promise that it will one day again belong to those who enter into God's favor. Another possible reason is that the priests were to symbolize the Lord they represented and who dwelt in the tabernacle. He had no blemishes whatsoever. He was perfect and complete. And so the priest, the one who was born into the line, that has some kind of birth defect or some kind of scarring or some kind of deal, he can't be a priest. He can't serve in the tabernacle. The whole purpose for which he is born has been taken away because of this defect. So God boots him to the curb. Is that what happens? No. No. What happens? He still gets to eat what? Of the holy things and the most holy things. He's not entitled to it. Technically. He's not... I have to caveat there. Jacob's looking at me. He's not... Now come over here. The scholar's gaze. Um, He's not entitled to it because he's not serving. And yet God in His grace allows him to eat of not only the holy things, but the most holy things. He didn't earn it. He didn't get it because... He's a stellar specimen of a human being. It's grace that he's able to eat at that table. What does that tell you about God? And what does that tell you about the privilege he gave to the descendants of Aaron? He's gracious. And he wants to honor the priesthood. And he wants the people to honor the priesthood because that's what he set up. That's how he how he drafted this stuff. F.F. Bruce gives a very interesting historical example of this prohibition at work. There was a period of time, shortly before the time of Christ, uh, the Hasmonean kings, I think they were called, where they're basically these guys who are set up as the kings of Judea, and and the outside controlling forces set them up and and gave them the office not only of king, but, well, gave them the office of high priest and a position at the, the foreign court to give them the power and the credibility to then become king. And so these, these are these kings and priests. Well, one guy in particular uh, was set into, set into power, and his name was Antagonus. And he, before he became the king, he was an antagonizing person. Uh, before he became king, he had to supplant the existing high priest. And so he did it, and he cropped his ears so that he would never be able to serve as high priest again. And even after the guy died, he still couldn't take resume the office of high priest because he had a blemish. It was done intentionally. And there are records in the Jewish, uh, Jewish histories about other priests that were, that were done similarly or, or not able to take uh, their role because they were scarred in battle or things like that. The passage ends 
uh, with confirming that Moses told all of this to Aaron and his sons. All right. Here are our takeaways, or at least you probably have some others. Priests were called to image the holiness of God to the people. In turn, priests were to image God to the people. So that lets the people off the hook. The priest is doing it, right? Is that, is that the way this works? Um, no. In fact, the people were to image the holiness of God to the world around them. The priests were the standard for them to, to model after, to, to, uh, to emulate, to be taught by. And they were to go out and model and image the holiness of God to the world around them, the pagan nations around them. Is that, that stopped then with Israel? Don't we see the same thing in the New Testament? There's this, uh, I know uh, Philip went through the, the pastoral epistles, and do you remember in, in, those, um, in those books, uh, two of them, I think at least, had the qualifications for pastor elder. And there's a standard there. They're to model um, holiness. Uh, and, and it's to be for the building up of the body, for the ministry, out in the world, representing Christ. That's the standard. That, that they're, they're, the leadership is to do that for the people in local congregations and throughout. A, pray for your leaders. Right? Because we see here, no matter how many times the Old Testament calls for a priesthood without blemish, the fact of the matter is that there were no priests without blemish. We're all defective. All of us are defective. Hebrews 7.28 uh, records for us that the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. That's certainly not perfect. That's certainly not without blemish. And though these physical defects were at issue in the law, what it points to is the moral defect of the heart. And none of us are without blemish there. There's no perfection when it comes to men. Even those who were set apart to serve before the presence of God in the tabernacle were flawed and weak men. As such, their mediation for the people was flawed because they were flawed. What does that point to? We need a flawless mediator. We need someone who is wholly blameless and undefiled to be our mediator. We need the flawless mediator who can stand before God representing the perfection of Eden and displaying the perfection of God to the people. Uh, I've heard of someone. Christ alone is without blemish. Only He fits this passage. Only He can be a high priest. <coughs> For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men, uh, for the law appoints men and their weaknesses as high priests, 
but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Not only is he without blemish, not only is he without blemish, but he bore our scars. He bore our defects. He bore our hidden flaws on himself by making himself the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, we saw this last Wednesday, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Two things there. One, uh, he's not going to be defiled by death because he conquered it. Uh, and two, he was perfect. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He offered himself without blemish to God, and what's the result? Are those who are flawed barred from service? No. Because of what he's done, he's purifying, he's purified, and will purify the conscience to serve the living God. And that's not, as we talked on Wednesday, that's not a... um, a rote ceremonial checklist thing. It's from the heart. From the heart serving His people. From the heart serving God in good works. There are defects of conscience that are as varied as the physical defects pictured in this passage. Some scars are obvious and deep. Some defects are carefully hidden. We see in this passage just how serious a problem that is for us. You cannot serve God. You can't stand before Him and serve Him with moral defects. You can't do it. Even the ones that we would consider light bar us from service. Guilt gains judgment not standing before God. But what does He do? He invites us to the table. Right? He takes on himself what would bar us from service and then gives us not just the holy things, but the most holy thing. Eat of me. Drink of me. The most holy thing. More holy than anything that was in the temple. He invites us to the table to eat what is most holy. It is in that meal, the trust in the finished work of His blood and body, that He doesn't just cover us to hide the defects, although He does, but He purifies the conscience for service from a new heart. And the restoration from these scars, from these blemishes, from this flaw that is my conscience, the restoration from that puts an obligation on me, doesn't it? The restoration of His people through the completed work of His Son once again puts demands on His people to reflect His holiness. He commands us not to play with death. 
even though we may feel the great compulsion to do so. He commands us to serve Him faithfully. It puts an obligation on our relationships not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It doesn't mean that you live in a commune, ghetto up as Christians, but it does mean that we keep our closest relationships among our kin. Right? Those who are adopted by the Father through Christ. Christ has risen conquering death and He's glorified in the hope of what He will eventually recreate us to be. Our whole lives should be lived as an expression of thankfulness because He has taken our blemishes, our defects, and nailed them to the cross of His Son. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.9, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. Colossians 1.10 says, So walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In, in all of our blemishes, in all of our warts, and all of the things that um, uh, are our own uh, little idiosyncratic issues that um, come out and plague us and, and all of that, as we're growing in grace, as we're loving Jesus more than we love the stuff that kills us, I mean, this is a, this, it's a continuum. Holiness is. We're made holy, and we fight for it daily. Not that Christ somehow becomes less sufficient as the days wear on, but that we want to image Him. Anyway. train got derailed. Anyway. <laughs> Any comments? The demands placed on the high priest is interesting that um, Jesus is our high priest. He didn't become defiled by touching the mm. dead to bring them to life. Right. And he didn't become defiled by being around the unfaithful and giving mm. them faith and by um, taking on the blemishes and when he was on the cross I mean he as our high priest was physically mm -hmm. blemished scarred for, marred beyond human recognition is that but none of that took away right. from him rather than with the human high priest it made them unclean right whatever was unclean when he was touched by the unclean he made the unclean clean right the other side of this too is look who the high priest was supposed to marry and look who Christ married and look who Christ married mm -hmm. the the church is going to marry i'm i'm speaking as if you know speaking in god terms we're already seated and the whole thing but he's to marry a virgin the high priest is and if you look at the body of Christ 
not so pristine. We're saved out of sin. We're saved out of death. And Paul uh, pleads from the heart, I would present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. That's what he's working toward. And that sounds so weird, because how do you go back except for the recreating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts? That's the goal. That's where we're headed. And we need to be working as he is working in us toward, toward that. Um, anyway. It, it is 10.05 and it feels awfully early to me. But I'm going to go ahead and pray. And we can visit for 20 minutes or something. I don't know. All right. Father, who is sufficient for these things? That you would take a people marred, defiled, scarred, flawed, and put all of that on your Son. A physical representation through the torture he went through getting to the cross. But in reality, spiritually taken upon himself, the one who knew no sin for our sake became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. Those who are right before you, seen as not having scars, seen as not having blemishes. And yet, Father, so many times we fall into the same patterns that led to the scarring. Would you be gracious to us? Let us once again eat from the most holy thing, confirming your love for us, our trust in you, and the provision that you have made for us in Christ. And in our faith in you, would you do what only you can do, which is to again renew, restore, transform the heart to rightly reflect you, both in our personal morality and also in the way that we treat one another, our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we display your love for your church by how we treat the church. We ask again that you would be with Philip as he steps in to the pulpit this morning. The words he speaks are words that you would have us hear and that our ears and our hearts are prepared to hear them and act on them. I pray that you guard his lips, that he speaks only truth consistent with your word and that we hear it that way. Thank you for the gift that we have in this place and the people you have gathered here. I pray that you continue to knit us together as one body and that we would be a blessing to this community that we would be um, encouraging to the other local bodies of believers around this place, and that we would prove that we are your disciples by how we love one another. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are now free to roam about the cabin. <laughs> Thank you.